All right, a bit of a grab bag lecture here. We're going to talk about carotid disease as well as uh, combined coronary and valvular operations. Which is correct regarding progression of known aortic valve disease? Life expectancy of a woman in her seventh decade is another eight years. Valve area decreases by 0.2 centimeters squared per year. Once the baseline gradient reaches 20, valve gradient increases by 5 millimeters per year. Mean interval of progression from moderate to severe stenosis is five to seven years. Okay, so most, most of you got that. So the, the takeaway from this question and this lecture is people live a lot longer than they think you do, right? <laughs> One or seven decades gonna live another 20, 30 years. These numbers that it goes down 0.1 centimeters per year, it goes up five millimeters per year. That's, it's totally impossible to predict how a valve's gonna work, right? You'll see these patients that have moderate stenosis and then in an echo in six months, wham, they're up to severe. So this idea that it's this chronic thing is, is not really correct. But this is pretty accurate. So once they have moderate stenosis, within a few years, you're gonna be operating on that patient. So that's why when you're in there for something else, you ought to consider replacing their valve. or we talk now, maybe TAVR might be something suitable uh, in the higher risk patient so you can leave it behind. So we, we don't have that answer yet. All right, so who has con concomitant carotid disease? Well, older patients, diabetics, a uh, little more common in the female gender, left main coronary disease, so circle that one, that's a big one. They, of course, if they had a prior stroke or carotid endarterectomy and they're big time smokers. So those are the big risk factors here. Who do we screen? Well, you could screen everybody, you could screen nobody, you could kind of pick somewhere in the middle. Um, for a test, you probably should say there are some specific patients you would screen. So if they've got a brewery, obviously, previous stroke or TIAs, bad, bad peripheral vascular disease, prior carotid, and advanced age, okay? So uh, how does coronary or carotid endarterectomy work? Well, it works really well. So this came, the first study was the NASET trial, and that showed that the risk of stroke at two years was much lower with surgery, about a third lower, and beneficial even with moderate stenosis. And the VA cooperative study, study showed similar reduction in stroke at one year after an operation. Additional studies reinforcing this. So you operate on people, four-year reduction of the VA cooperative study, three years in ACAS, ACST, 50% in three years. So carotid endarterectomy works great, right? It's a really good operation to reduce the risk of stroke. So let's go ahead and try stenting then, because it doesn't seem like <laughs> we're doing very good with carotid surgery, whatever. So great, right? Here comes carotid stents, fantastic. They actually double the death and stroke rate in these patients. So this is a uh, uh, what we would call a non-inferiority study, right? It was clearly inferior to existing carotid endarterectomy. So this is a very uh, unusual procedure now, and uh, little data is actually available in using it in patients that are having concomitant coronary surgery. So how often do we have concomitant coronary and carotid disease? So about 5 to 8% of patients that have coronary disease have significant carotid disease, Older patients, and particularly left main, up to 50% of these patients will have a, uh, at least a moderate carotid stenosis. We all talk about the risk factors for stroke after coronary bypass. This tends to be mostly due to 
junk in the aorta. So atheroma in the aorta during cannulation, clamping, and things like that. Air embolism is pretty rare. History of previous stroke tends to increase the risk, right? Carotid lesions are actually not that big of a risk factor for stroke during coronary bypass for a couple of reasons. One is cerebral vascular resistance is lowered, so they tend to have better flow to the brain. They're hypothermic, so that reduces uh, brain metabolism. There's hemodilution, again, so better flow to the brain. And autoregulation of cerebral blood flow is more related to the actual flow from the pump than the mean arterial pressure. So basically, your indications for concomitant coronary bypass and cor carotid endorectomy are pretty limited. The patients that you should consider doing this on are ones that have symptomatic disease in both territories, right? So severe coronary disease, they've got unstable angina, so they're having urgent surgery. They have left main stenosis, or they have three-vessel disease with poor LV function that's bringing them actively to surgery, and they have a symptomatic carotid stenosis, right? So that's pretty uncommon to have both of those. I would say probably the, the most common way you see this is patients that have carotid disease. So they're scheduled for a, they've had a TIA, they're scheduled for a, a carotid endorectomy, and then they start getting worked up about their surgery and it unmasks their chest pain, right? So those are the ones that tend to come. It's not usually they come to the hospital with, with unstable angina and you pick up a, a symptomatic carotid. So typically what we do is stage the, stage the procedures, right? So you got somebody with bad coronary disease and you find out they've got an asymptomatic carotid stenosis or they're, you know, coming for carotid surgery and they get screened, uh, they either have stable angina or they have a positive stress test. The controversial area are patients that have either bilateral stenosis and you're going to do a coronary operation on them or you're doing a redo and they've also got pretty high grade disease in the other one. So those are complicated patients. Fortunately, modern anesthesia and all that, we're, we're usually able to do these staged pretty safely. So if you're going to do it combined, this is how you do it. You do the carotid endorectomy first. You open the neck. You do all that. You can do it before you go on pump. There are, there are centers that actually do on-pump carotid endorectomy. Even under circa arrest, it's pretty nice, right? There's no blood. You can shell that thing out pretty nice. Usually leave the wound open until you reverse with protamine at the end. I put carotid stenting here because there are high-risk patients, right, that are really old and really sick that you might consider doing a carotid stent on uh, before you do coronary bypass, but there's no real good literature on that. Results of combined procedures in general, the morbidity and mortality is for two operations, right? So it's going to be basically double. Mortality, 4%. Stroke rates as high as 10%. MI, 5 6%. So Fortunately, a very small percentage of these patients will be true candidates for that, and you're better off staging it as, as, uh, as well as you can. So here's your management algorithm, right? Coronary disease, again, it, usually when they come to us, they've got coronary disease, and you're screening their carotids. You get a duplex, it's positive, then get a CT or an MRI to really figure out how severe that stenosis is. Uh, if it's if it's severe, right on on CT, uh, then you got to say, well, do they have unstable angina, and uh, we got a super tight stenosis that's that's symptomatic? Then you can do a combined uh, operation. Otherwise, you stage it. Okay, now just a couple of comments about combined combined valvular and ischemic heart disease. So aortic disease, coronary disease, mitral, and then double valve and coronary disease. So as we talked about in the 
the preview question, life expectancy in the seventh decade is 10 years for men and 13 years for females. It's probably even longer than that now. Once you get to a valve area of one centimeter, right, that's moderate stenosis. Below that's considered severe, and the gradient over 40 is severe, and less than 25 is considered mild stenosis, but if you have a low EF, that can, can reduce your, your gradient and sort of falsely make it low. Uh, natural history of moderate stenosis, so, you know, roughly one to one and a half centimeters squared in 10 years, a third only AVR, 15 years, half of them will. So we just got to pay attention to these. And we say the gradient increases by about seven when it's 10 or more or down by 0.1 centimeters. Again, that's just kind of a rule of thumb, but circle that at the bottom. Once they get moderate, the mean, the average time to severe stenosis is five to seven years. A low EF can result in low gradients, so it's a less ca accurate calculation of AS. It's called low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis, severe aortic stenosis. Uh, watch out for the patients that can still generate a good pressure and have a heavily calcified valve that's stiff. That's a good candidate for concomitant AVR or TAVR, even if the gradient isn't 40 millimeters of mercury. If they have a thin left heart, low gradient and low LV pressure, that means they don't generate a lot of pressure, and they're probably not a good candidate for concomitant AVR because you're not going to get a good benefit from that valve replacement. A patient has aortic insufficiency in coronary disease. So AVR in this setting is going to relieve the preload, that volume overload of the heart, but does not do anything for the afterload. It's revascularization, not the AVR, that's going to improve cardiac function. The mortality, fortunately, is pretty similar to uh, AVR coronary for aortic stenosis. We talked already a little bit about these in the previous talk, mitral stenosis and coronary disease. Again, just remember, stenosis causes pulmonary hypertension, right heart problem, coronary disease, left heart problem. Mitral insufficiency, again, we touched on this briefly, decreased contractility and increased LV pressures from both conditions, so it's a double LV problem. Now, when you get over to double valve on the left side in coronary disease, the determination here is whether the mitral insufficiency is gonna get better we hear a lot in the TAVR world, we're like, oh, we'll just, we'll just do the TAVR and see how the mitral valve works. And sometimes that's right. The left ventricle, it's a little bit smaller, a little better forward outflow, and the mitral insufficiency gets, gets better. But we don't kind of have that quick option in the operating room. So consider mitral repair if there's anatomic changes or severe MR that you don't think is going to get better. But do remember that operative mortality on these patients can be in the teens. Aortic insufficiency, mitral insufficiency in coronary disease. Most of these patients will have heart failure. It's hard to determine how well that left heart works, right? Because everything's going backward. The heart's gotten lazy and just pushing everything back through both valves. That dilated LV may not have good reserving and function after you put two competent valves in there. So you really got to make sure you've got viable myocardium and, and reversible ischemia and, and revascularize them totally. Okay, follow-up question. The incidence of associated carotid artery disease among patients with left main coronary disease is 5%, 20%, 50%, 75%, or 90%. 50%. <laughs> All right. Let's take a little break. And uh, we'll come back. <laughs>